are you all warm enough? <laughs> I, thinking about coming over here, I was tempted to bring a little mister bottle and just mist you all rather than doing a Dharma talk. <laughs> oh. So just to uh, say a little bit about uh, my choice of topic for this evening and how I arrived at it. In the week just prior to starting here with you for this month of July, I would find my mind turning to the Dharma and thinking, you know, what might I want to speak with you about for the first Dharma talk? And I noticed that something that would come up in my mind was um, a tiny little bit of comparing mind. You know, just being aware that for many of you, uh, I'm following on the heels of a very learned and respected monk. And here I am, a lay woman, coming to offer the Dharma. So I felt a little bit of wavering in confidence. So I thought, well, what's needed here? Trust. And that was how I chose this topic. And then I noticed that it was very applicable uh, to another situation that's really current in my life. Um, in the past months, just over the course of this year, my mother, who's 77, has shifted from living alone in her home, where she lived for 51 years and where I grew up, to uh, a nursing home. And it was the usual route, or an often common route, of falling and breaking a hip and being hospitalized and then needing more support, you know, just needing more care. So she's now in a place where she's being cared for. And that leaves me, her daughter, with the house of 51 years and all that that includes, you know, quite a full life of belongings and memories and finances and just all of it, you know, all the pieces that make up a life, they've all been left behind uh, for me <laughs> to navigate. And I've noticed in the recent months as I'm learning how to find my way with all of that, that sometimes it's really overwhelming and sometimes confusing. Some of it is a steep learning curve you know, just needing to learn a whole bunch of new things. And I noticed that um, it's not always easy to trust the timing of it. You know, particularly, I think, because it's, it's not a, a very happy scenario. You know, there's difficulty in it or sadness, some loss, some letting go. So I find myself sometimes impatient, like I just want to finish. I want to be done. <laughs> I want to sell the house and move the belongings on to their next place, etc. Like now. <laughs> and so I found, you know, in these recent days after deciding, you know, that the topic I would hold in my heart until I came here to speak with you was trust, that it really helped in that situation as well. 
to just trust the timing of it, to trust the process of it, in a way to trust my intention in it, my intention to be helpful, and that it might not look the way I would like it to look. And then just speaking with a few of you over the last two days, having the sense that trust isn't such a bad thing to offer any of you at all the different places that you might be in your practice. So that's the topic of the talk tonight. And I've noticed for myself, you know, in just kind of landing on that talk topic, that it can sometimes be as simple as remembering that we can trust. Just for me, holding it in my heart over the past week or so as a topic has been so helpful. It's just been a great reminder, a great reminder to relax, to open to what's happening to reconnect with what's happening. I think as with, as with most things, it can also be practiced and cultivated if we're not so used to trusting, if it's not our, um, if it's not our habit so much. I think it can be encouraged and supported. So often, though, we tend to get in our own way. Most of the time. Most of the time, there's not really anyone else getting in our way. We get in our own way. Maybe there are hindrances arising in practice, different difficult states that might obscure the place of trust, might obscure a natural ease or clarity or peace. So sometimes it's useful to just see that what's important is to recognize that something is obscuring that peace, that ease, and then to apply ourselves to being with that, to seeing how to navigate that, to letting go there, perhaps. One of the things I like to do because I live in partnership, uh, when I'm considering a talk, when I'm holding a topic in my heart, I, I like to bring it up with my husband and discuss it with him. And he's not of this tradition, and so he can have a refreshingly um, different twist on things uh, that can be really helpful. So when I spoke to him about trust this week, he said that in the tradition that he is more practiced in, which is uh, the teachings of Gurdjieff, one of his teachers in that tradition always said, trust the work that in that tradition, the many, they draw on many practices and um, do different kinds of uh, conscious exercises, mental exercises, also physical. And they call the, all of this the work. So he always said, this teacher, trust the work. 
And I thought, how to interpret that for us? How would we interpret that? Maybe trust the practice. But I also thought, maybe trust the unfolding. Because I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves that whatever is arising, that's where we can do this practice. That's the ground. That's the, the kind of raw material that we have to work with in this cultivation of insight, of wisdom, of compassion. One of the things that my husband and I uh, love and spend a lot of time, particularly at this time of year, doing is growing our own food. So we have a pretty large vegetable garden uh, that uh, makes up a big chunk of our backyard. And I really like to think about the garden as a metaphor for practice. There's a lot of different ways that it works, at least in my mind. You can see if it works for you. The other day, a friend came over and she was eager to uh, take a walk through the garden and check out how things were growing and what was ripening and you know what was happening there. And I said, wait, 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 I really want to show you this. This is what I'm really excited about. And I took her down to the compost pile. <laughs> and we, we compost everything, you know, all of our organic material. And, you know, we don't do it in any kind of sophisticated way at all. I know there are some elaborate processes, but I tell you, it can be really easy. <laughs> so we just make a wire container circle, and then we just throw everything in there. And that's all we do for years. <laughs> And, you know, every few years we remove the wire and set up a new one somewhere, and here you have this amazing compost. But we noticed recently that the compost pile seemed to be never filling, like it would just keep, we, it was like the perpetual pile. <laughs> we kept adding to it, and it kept settling. And uh, my husband just showed me the other day, the reason for this is that the comp what's turned into compost is sort of pouring out the bottom. So, you know, that's why it's settling. So I took my friend over and showed her what is pouring out the bottom, which maybe it's a little hard to appreciate if you're not a gardener, but trust me, it is beautiful. It's the most amazing stuff. It's like dirt, but more beautiful and more refined than dirt. It's like it falls through your fingers. It's loose and airy and clean, but it's dirt. <laughs> it's basically what this stuff becomes. And it's also um, a great resource, a great nourishment, a source of nourishment for the garden. So we take it from there and then feed the garden with it. And it somehow just, uh, I like this image a lot in terms of our practice, and maybe um, I'll just take a little moment to get back to that. So sometimes 
in our practice, there are beautiful states arising. States like concentration, calm, equanimity, metta, rapture or joy. We like those. And they're kind of like, you know, the beautiful sunlight and the clean, beautiful, clear water for the garden. It's easy to like them, to appreciate them. And then there are other times in practice when what's there isn't quite so pleasant, like frustration or doubt or restlessness or conceit. And these things can be much more difficult to appreciate than those sunnier (laughs) components. But I think these are like the manure or the ingredients that we put into the compost pile that actually have the potential of turning into that nourishment for growth, that beautiful soil that comes out of a compost pile and then nourishes new growth. And sometimes, like a garden, we t- you know, can have to spend a lot of time sort of <laughs> pulling up the weeds. Sometimes there are a lot of weeds growing in our minds and hearts and, you know, we need to do some clearing. We need to do some work there. And I think it's a process over time of learning to trust all of that. Maybe even on a certain level appreciate it. It's kind of a counter to what we're trained in, you know, in this culture, in our lives. We don't get a lot of that kind of training, mostly. You know, maybe you were one of the lucky few who did. But when I look at, like, what we're trained to trust in, what we're trained to rely on in our lives, something that stands out very strongly is the thinking mind. I'm the stepmother of a young woman who is turning 22 this year, and we just had a little uh, graduation party for her graduation from college. And I thought about it. Well, here she is turning 22, and she's spent 17, maybe 18 years in school. That's a long time cultivating that thinking mind. And I'm not discrediting it. Of course it's useful. It's important. And it has its place. We tend to uh, value it so highly and not do the other training, you know, until we come to meditation, maybe. So we're trained to be rational, analytical, trust the thinking mind. 
And then culturally, just looking at the orientation in our culture, an orientation of consumption, acquisition, achievement, success, status. So much about gaining, not so much about letting go. So it's a big shift. In that cultural orientation toward gain, we also learn to measure ourselves constantly. You know, we get to be really good at this, measuring and comparing and judging, figuring out how we measure up. Sometimes it's positive. We might see that or imagine or know that we're as good as, or better than, or at least equal to. Sometimes it's negative, where we recognize insufficiency. We might label ourselves as underachiever, not successful. All those opposites of success. And the interesting thing, and I think really useful, at least it's been really useful for me over the course of my life, and particularly in practice, this is where I saw this most clearly, I somehow thought that it was okay or more acceptable to judge myself harshly. You know, not to build the ego up. That wasn't so cool. But to recognize, you know, my shortcomings, that was good. You know, and maybe to see my struggles and difficulties. I could relate to that. (laughs) And at a certain point, it became so clear that both the positive and the negative were serving the same function. They were both supporting ego. They were both substantiating a sense of self a sense of a separate self. So that's not so trustworthy, that framework. We can see in our practice how that leads to suffering, and maybe in our lives as well. That building up of ego, whether it's positively or negatively, The ego is a painful thing to be tethered to. It's kind of like um, an animal of some kind, a not very happy animal. And you might notice that it's hungry a lot of the time (laughs) and prone to taking us on wild rides to places that, you know, we might never have intended to go. So we see, and we know, of course, already on some level, but I think we see it deeper and deeper throughout the course of our lives and practice that this isn't so trustworthy, that way of perceiving. So what is trustworthy? Where can we rest? Where can we place our trust? 
I find that when I most need to remember trust, when I'm most wobbly, that what's most reliable for me is to trust simplicity. So in practice, when we feel out of balance in some way, see if you can trust the simplicity of knowing. What would that mean? The simplicity of knowing, the breath, just this next breath as it moves through the body. Perhaps the sensations of warmth as you sit here. The movement of sweat rolling on the skin. It's something we can know. It's very direct. It's very simple. It's very now. It's trustworthy, that knowing. So what's tangible, like the body, is easier. With the less tangible things, sometimes it's a little harder, but also worthy in terms of trusting the simplicity of knowing. So knowing contact at the sense doors, just in that bare knowing, the simplicity. So I like to add the word just sometimes, just seeing, just hearing, tasting, touching, thinking, smelling. Just this moment, just this knowing. We can trust that particularly in times when doubt is strong. It's really helpful to reconnect in this way, very simply, very directly, with something you can know. A yogi some years ago left me this short poem called Enough. The man who wrote it is David White. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again. Until now. Until now. Can we let any moment be enough? Can we trust that? Another thing that I've seen in terms of the development of trust in my practice and in life, you know, the example of that I gave of uh, taking on my mother's worldly Remain, remainder, uh, it certainly applies there, is to trust the process rather than the result. 
So trusting is really a verb here. It's a process, a willingness to see what's arising, a willingness to engage with our experience, to explore it in service of developing wisdom, of deepening our understanding, freeing the heart. When we can trust the process versus the result, and it's that shift from that cultural orientation that we're trained in, in terms of gain and acquisition, to the shift of trusting the process, trusting the means, trusting perhaps our intention. When we're able to do that, we have the sense that there's no wrong experience in our meditation. Because it's not about what's happening. It's much more about how we're relating to what's happening how we're learning from what's happening, how we're coming to a place of ease and understanding with what's happening. I've found that a helpful reminder over the years in practice that there's no wrong experience, just to help shift from that one model of acquisition to the model of trusting the process. So a big piece of how I see trust is acceptance. And again, it's much easier to do this. It comes kind of naturally when experience is more pleasant and much more challenging when those raw materials haven't yet turned to that beautiful light compost that's nourishing, when they're still kind of stinky (laughs) and difficult. A friend uh, some months ago was dealing with some challenges in her uh, family and shared some of that with me. Uh, Let me see into that experience that she was going through. And afterwards, she wrote me a note of thanks for being there. And in the note, she included this beautiful little passage. It says says it's a, a chant from the Zen tradition. Within light, there is darkness. But do not try to understand that darkness. Within darkness, there is light. But do not look for that light. Light and darkness are a pair, like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. So learning to trust the light 
and the darkness. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves. Sometimes we're facing resistance. Sometimes resistance can be really strong. So what then? Can't exactly force trust. (laughs) Then it's time to see how much can we accept? Can we accept that it's a challenging time? Can we accept that resistance is what's happening? It's sometimes I feel practice like the layers of an onion. And so sometimes the resistance is one of the outer layers. And that's where we need to start. That's what we need to accept, that that's what's happening. And in accepting that, it's not that we stop there. We just say, okay, there's resistance, and that's it. But somehow shifting to accepting even something difficult, even the opposite of accepting, accepting the non-accepting, can help start the process start to soften. That layer, perhaps, starts to loosen. And then maybe the next layer underneath is easier to see. Perhaps it was fear. Could be anything. But it often, in my experience, feels like that, like layers that we open to. I think it's important when talking about acceptance to remind ourselves when thinking about acceptance that acceptance doesn't mean, this kind of acceptance, it doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean that, like I just said, that we accept that resistance is there, that we might say, okay, well, I'm a resistant person, that's the way it is, I accept it and I'm stuck with it. Not quite on the mark. (laughs) So we start with accepting that it's there. But that allows us to continue to look. We don't stop there. It gives us, it helps us soften enough, maybe gather enough energy that was previously being spent in the resisting to look some more, to go deeper, to open further, to see more clearly. It takes a lot at times to face uh, some of our patterns, you know, some of these deep habits that we have, ways of being. And seeing them and accepting them means that awareness can be there and then start to do the work. The way I see it unfolding in my own practice in life is that with that acceptance, I then can see more clearly, and in that clear seeing, I have more choice. So I'm not pulled by that habit quite as strongly. It's a very powerful thing that awareness offers us, that moment of choice 
where we can take a different route. And in this process, of course, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight unless you're extremely fortunate. <laughs> May it be so. In my experience, you know, it, it, developing this trust and this ability to accept what's there has required quite a lot of patience. And I think in a way, you know, patience is a kind of expression of trust. You know, we don't give up. We can be patient with it. Someone said just the other day, you know, that she was facing some challenges and, well, if nothing else, there was enduring patience. And I thought, great. There are times when that's what we're strengthening. That's the particular flowering in the garden that month or week or day is that patience, that willingness. And again, you know, I think I mentioned this already in terms of my mother. You know, it was helpful for me when I feel lost and confused and impatient to just trust my intention that I am trying to help, that I want to help, that I'm offering myself as best as I'm able. And I think that that can be really helpful in practice, too. That's why I chose, you know, a reflection on what brings us to practice the other morning. It can be a very useful tool, a useful kind of uh, buoying when things are difficult. Sort of keep us on track. And also, whatever you can do to see if you can tune in or reconnect with the sense that you have a place here on this path. I mean, here you are spending your life or some weeks or months or days out of your lives to just be quiet and look inside and do this work. It's not so usual in our culture. You belong here. You have a place here. I like to remember the Buddha touching the earth like the statue behind me. Just that connection that he had a right to be there. If you've been practicing for any length of time, days or years, you'll also see and know and learn to trust, if you don't already, that there are cycles in practice. Just like there are cycles in life, 
There are cycles in practice. And we tend to uh, want it to be nice and linear. (laughs) A nice, progressive, linear, uphill, (laughs) ongoing to the top kind of path. Maybe. It hasn't been the case for me. I think there actually is progression, but there are lots of ups and downs and detours. (laughs) It's not so neat and linear. And again, for me, nature is just a, a beautiful reminder about cycles. Flowers open and close. The sky brightens and darkens. Clouds over, clears up. The cycle of seasons, growth and hibernation or stillness. We're not separate from all these cycles. We have our own. And again, like the garden, you know, sometimes there's growth happening. There's uh, germination taking place, but we can't see it yet. Maybe it's underground, or maybe we need a little bit more rain, a little bit more moisture. And then the seed cracks open. And then there are cycles where we feel like we're making progress. We feel strong and clear in our practice. Even if it's difficult, we have the sense that we're, we're moving along. There are insights arising, understanding is deepening. And then cycles where it seems like nothing's happening. I think it's all important. And then there are those unsettling, stormy (laughs) cycles where there's a lot going on and it's hard and scary and difficult and confusing. I remember once years ago being on a a two-month retreat that I had really been looking forward to taught by a very well-respected teacher. It felt really important to be there, and I was grateful to be a part of it. And it seemed like my practice was cooking. You know, things were happening. I was doing, I was working hard. I was putting in a lot of effort. And something happened. It was actually a certain kind of opening and a certain kind of insight, I think, But I got really scared, and I felt unstable and not well-supported enough in that particular structure. And I left the retreat halfway through a two-month retreat. It's the only retreat I've ever left early, and it was like an important one. (laughs) You know, my teacher's teacher and many people I knew and loved sitting, and I've left. 
it was kind of devastating. I remember feeling really wobbly for a while and thinking, man, <laughs> I have blown it. <laughs> and I can laugh about it now because in the end, it turned out to be a very important cycle for me. In the end, for me, what was important was that even though it took the better part of a year <laughs> to feel confident again in my own practice, it was a stronger confidence. And it was confidence in my practice. And I don't mean that in a possessive way, but I mean it in a personal way, that um, I had to trust my own practice and how it was going and what I needed to do and how I needed to do it. It was really kind of a big deal. So it was what could have been kind of devastating and, you know, seen as like not successful (laughs) ended up being a kind of gift in a way that I felt like once I did come back to feeling grounded in my practice, it was with deeper, stronger groundedness. And we can't know that at the time, unfortunately. We have to kind of just trust what we're going through and how we're being with it. A friend sent me this uh, story. I'd like to try to just pull a piece out of it uh, to share with you. The, the man who's telling the story, his name is Steve Jobs. And those of you who are computer people would know of him. But if not, um, he's the founder of Apple, uh, which is a big computer company, and makes the Macintosh computer. And he was invited to do a commencement speech at a college. I think it was in 2005. If you're interested later in your life, you could probably find it online somewhere. But he had actually never been to college himself, or never graduated. He started and very quickly dropped out. Uh, And so he tells just like three fragments of stories from his life for his commencement speech. And the one that I'd like to share with you, he calls Connecting the Dots. So he describes how uh, in his life, uh, not having been to college, he then was around a college and, you know, with nothing better to do, he sat in on a class. And he just chose one that seemed interesting to him, which was calligraphy, you know, writing. And so he learned about all these different uh, scripts and uh, forms of writing which he later brought into his work and uh, implemented in computer programming. And it was kind of revolutionary to have different uh, typefaces. So he says, if I had never dropped out, I would have never dropped in on this calligraphy class. And personal computers might not have the wonderful typography that they do. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was taking that class. 
but it was very, very clear looking backwards ten years later. Again, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something. Your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down, and it has made all the difference in my life. We tend to want it to be, you know, uh, linear and progressive, like I was saying. And also we want to be able to see those dots <laughs> ahead of time and where they're going and know that we're going to get there and be able to look back. A nice, neat progression, maybe. But until we are able to look back, like for me, you know, leaving that retreat, I was so unsettled and it felt really kind of like sad and uh, a failure of sorts. And in the end, sometime later, I could look back and see the benefit in it. And this is how it goes for us, I think, often in life, in practice. You know, that we want to be able to see it, but we have to find some place to place our trust, something to trust, a way to trust, until we can see it. Like he was saying, your gut, life, destiny, karma. Maybe trust the practice, trust the unfolding. So until we can see, you know, the way the dots have connected, what can we do? to trust, to allow, to accept, to keep going. I'd like to close with this, these words from Ryokan. In the entire ten directions of the Buddha's universe, there is only one way. When we see clearly, there is no difference in the teachings. What is there to lose? What is there to gain? If we gain something, it was there from the beginning. If we lose anything, it is hidden nearby. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.